Titus chapter 1, please. Titus chapter number 1. Excuse me. And let's go ahead and stand, please. We're going to begin in verse number 5 and read down to verse 16 or to the end of the chapter. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. And let's pray. Father, we have read your words to us, and I pray that I would be able to deal with them faithfully and accurately, and that we would receive them gladly, recognizing them not as fables, but as facts, the word of the Lord. I pray your blessing upon our church that we would be devoted to your position and your teaching. I pray this for all of your people and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, this is the second of the third, at least chronologically, New Testament books that we refer to as the pastoral epistles. Two pastors about their ministry in the assembly, why they, what it is, and why they have it. And for that reason, it is, of course, necessary for the entire assembly to be familiar with the books. 
In chapter 1 and verse number 3, Paul explained to Timothy that God had decreed before he had ever formed the world that he would make his word known through its proclamation that he would inform people what he, who he was and what he was doing and what he wanted, what he demanded, what he expected. By having his word proclaimed by men that he has raised up to be his messengers to his people. And Paul then is one of the many who have occupied that office. In every one of the pastorals, Paul recognizes that this is what God has for him. 1 Timothy 2.7, Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. 2 Timothy 1.11, Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. And so Paul is viewing, and we're gonna, we'll, we'll keep on going with this a little bit, that, that, that God has like this progression of spokesmen that he has called, that he has commissioned, that he has given his words. They are, we'll see this, they are not unusually gifted or talented men. They do not stand out for any observable reason, but God has called them and has given to them a task. Paul is one in a succession, but he is not the end of the succession. And that is really much of what is going on in the book of Titus. And that is what brings us then to our passage this evening, verses 5 through 16. In other words, folks, whether it be 1 Timothy, right? And again, right? If you remain at Westwood Heights Baptist Church long enough you're going to be involved in the process of replacing me. And if the Lord moves you to another ministry, you're going to have, in that search process, you're going to have to give, or at least you should, give some attentiveness to the kind of man who will become your pastor. But understand, folks, that the pastor is not really the end or the goal of what is going on. We have, right? I mean, in, in the background that I come, and you know, that's 40 years ago, so maybe I should stop talking about it. We, we, man, we magnified the man of God as if being a man of God was almost an end in and of itself. But it isn't. God has his men, his preachers, because God has his people. The, the pastors, whoever they are, wherever they are, whenever they are, exist for the purpose of ministering the word of God to the people and towering over all of them, the congregation and the pastor, is the word itself. 
And Paul is going to do something with reference to pastors that he is simply going to continue, folks. There's, there's a sense in which the pastor may have a little bit more of the spotlight on him, but, but the light shines on him only in a sense that it is supposed to shine on everybody else. In other words, folks, one of the reasons that, we, that a pastor has to meet certain qualifications is because nobody, not me, not you, nobody is ever allowed to live in such a way that God's word is dishonored. Paul will repeat that to people who are not pastors. That there's a way for us to live, that we are to have this way in mind because it is a terrible thing to live in such a way that people can criticize God's word. And where God begins with that principle is with pastors. God, God has something to say. Okay? Again, I'm not trying to belabor this. God has something to say to everybody. He could say it with angels. He could write banners in the sky. He could communicate it in many ways, but what he has done is given its proclamation to humanity. Here, these are my words. Go proclaim them. And part of the responsibility of proclaiming them is to not live in such a way that you dishonor them. So that again, folks, it isn't so much that the pastor is what is important, but the word is what is important. It is the word of the Lord, not the pastor, that is the true authority in an assembly. So let's turn our attention to the way that Paul walks through this, and I just want to divide this this portion, verses 5 through 16, along four lines. First of all, Paul explains to Titus that there is a proper process that must be followed. Verses 3 through 5. And we didn't read verse 3, but I've already made reference of it. That, That God has chosen to make his word known through his proclamation. And then he writes to Titus, verse 4, My own son after the common faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. So that again, folks, the idea of ordination, the idea of ordination, of having one person who holds the office or a group of people who hold the office or who wield authority, validating the call and commission of somebody else is not a man-made invention. It's not an initiation into some kind of a secret club. But that it is the recognition, right? It is, it is the best that we can do in our humanity for us to bring these three witnesses to the table 
that there is an internal call. I believe that God wants me to do this. There is an external approval. We also think that God would have you to do this. There's an objective set of standards. Your life has to reflect these things. So that there is a process that is involved. Paul assigns the task to Titus that Titus would do at the much smaller local level what Paul had done and in a larger sense what God had done. God has appointed me an apostle, says Paul. Now Titus, I appointed you and you go out and you appoint others. This is why I left you in Crete, a church about which we know almost nothing. And we have lots of speculation, but very little information on the actual establishment of Crete. It's obvious that Paul had been there, right? We know from the book of Acts that Paul had been in Ephesus. We know from Timothy that Paul had sent Timothy back to Ephesus. But at some point in time, Paul and Titus had gone to Crete. Paul had left, Titus had stayed, this is why. This is why I'm left you in Crete. We know that Titus was a Gentile, whereas Timothy was a Jew. And we know that from Galatians 1.4. And Titus was to set in order a word that contributes to our world of the orthodontist the man or woman whose responsibility is to make our teeth straight. Titus was to set things straight in the local churches. And part of setting things straight was the ordination of pastors in every city. To do this just as Paul had been appointed and as Paul had appointed Titus. So there is a process to this. Again, folks, and the process is because God has chosen to make his word known through its proclamation. And so then in verses 6 through 9, Paul talks about the person. There is a process that God has chosen to reveal his word through preaching and and that assignment has been passed down. In the New Testament church, it is different than, than it had been in the past when God had prophets and now he has apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors. Well, what about the person who will hold the office? Well, I think we could safely argue, folks, that there is one word that dominates his qualifications. And that is the word blameless. Verse number six. If any be blameless. And then verse number seven. For a bishop must be blameless. Blameless. And of course, the word is an adjective. It is modifying the bishop. Right? What what must the pastor be? What kind of man must he be? He must be a blameless man. It is always translated, the five times it's used in the New Testament as blameless, it means beyond reproof, without reproach. 
In a legal setting, the idea is that he could not be indicted. It's not a demand for sinless perfection. That's not a possibility. It is the expectation that there's not enough, and I'm not talking about in the sleazy, lawyerly fashion, but that the man lives in such a way that there's just not really a lot of evidence to be used against him. He must be this. He must be this kind of man. I don't know any sincere pastor who doesn't shudder under the weight of that kind of verse. But nevertheless, that is what the text demands. Well, under what realms could he not be indicted? Under what realms is this man to be blameless? Well, Paul works us through a list that is going to cover the entirety of his life. First of all, with reference to his home. Verse number six, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife. I'm not going to go back and revisit that, but the literal translation would be a one-woman man. And again, I'm not going to go back and spend a lot of time on it, but there are a number of people who run right to the divorce issue, which matters, but I think that the idea is much larger than simply whether there's been a divorce in the past. Again, folks, we've had presidents, just to think of one public realm of figure, who have only been married one time but have had many women. John Kennedy had one wife. By no stretch of anybody's imagination was he a one-woman man. And his children, back to verse number 6, are obedient to the Lord, having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. Riot refers to their morality, if we wanted to make some kind of a distinction, that they're not morally dissolute. And unruly refers to their obedience. Do they do what they're told? Do they do those things that they are told? So the man is blameless with reference to his home life. He is faithful to his wife and his children are faithful. Then there is, secondly, no room for indictment when it comes to his personal character. Verses 7 and 8. He is not self-willed. He does not all about himself. He is not quickly angry. He's not a temper tantrum waiting to go off. He is not given to wine. He is not a striker. People are not afraid of being physically abused by him. He is not a lover of silver. He's not in it for the money. But on the other hand, verse number 8, he is a lover of hospitality. Likes people, particularly those that are strangers. Welcoming them, greeting them, helping them. A lover of good men, and actually... 
the Greek text simply says, loves good. He loves good. He is sober. This is a word that is used a lot by Paul with reference to not simply pastors, but all believers. He is in his right mind. He is just, verse number 8, is righteous. He is holy. He is pure and undefiled, and he is temperate. Another word that Paul makes much use of is a man who is able to control himself, his urges, and his impulses. Now here's the question, folks, and we could, I mean, we could spend a lot of time on these, and, and many of you know me well enough to know that I don't score 100 in all of these areas, but here's the question that I would ask. Are there any of these that you shouldn't be? Are there any of these that should not be said about any group of believers? Should not every home function like that? Should not every marriage be like that? Should not every man and woman be pure and holy and righteous and under control and in their right mind? Is there, is there really any place in the body of Christ for there to be for there to be people who are not like that? Is this not the ambition for all? All of which, folks, I just want to reinforce that there's nothing really extraordinary when it comes to the Bible's description of a pastor. There's nothing about his academic achievements or his academic abilities apart from Paul's observation in Timothy that he should be apt to teach, which I would understand to mean inclined to teach as opposed to scream and yell and throw a fit, there's nothing about his oratorical skills. Something, by the way, I would point out to you that Paul did not have. Nobody went to hear Paul preach because he was a great speaker. Nothing about his dramatic ability, nothing about his management skills, nothing about this man being a visionary or a dynamic leader or any of the kind of nonsense that we use to describe modern-day ministers. He is just simply a guy. He is just simply a guy who is trying to be what every believer is supposed to be. Now he's different because he has spiritual authority that is vested in in his call and in the word, but he's just cut out of the same stuff that anybody else is. Because always, folks, it is not the man but the message that is God is the worker, 1 Corinthians 3. God's word is the worker. And his his goal is that he have people preach it whose lives do not impede it, but that's about as far as that goes.
In verses 9 through 14, Paul talks about why this must be this way, the purpose. But there's a process. God, over the course of time, has chosen people to proclaim his word. And when we start talking about the person who will do that, then there are some things that have to be true of them. And why must they be true? If the word of God is pure, and it is. And if the word of God is powerful, and it is. And if the word of God can divide to the piercing of the soul and spirit, and it can. And if, by the way, Somebody can preach the gospel with a really bad attitude and with a really bad motivation and somebody still believe it, as Paul said, then why does it matter how the people who have it live? That's really what Paul gets into in verses 9 through 14. Why must it be this way? So he must then, in verse number 9, hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught so that and I'm going to put add the so there because that's what is meant in the word that so that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers for there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers especially they of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped who subvert whole houses teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. So God is going to make his word and his will known through its proclamation, and he is going to proclaim it through people. So that those people can with sound doctrine Sound meaning in good health. Healthy doctrine. The things that he has been taught, he can do two things that are necessary. There are two things necessary in the assembly, folks, when it comes to the ministry of the word. Verse number nine. The first is exhortation. Exhortation. This is ministry to the strong. Ministry that is encouraging and directing and exhorting people to the right position and the right practice. And then there is, secondly, verse number nine, to convince the gainsayer. This is to refute those who contradict it. Because there are people who contradict the word of the Lord. And I think we know this, folks, but they're not all found in CNN. Many of them write books professing themselves to be Christian authors. And many of them get on the airwaves professing to be Christian teachers. And many of them are charming and engaging and delightful to listen to. And sometimes the things that they say make really great sense and they sound very engaging and appealing. I mean, there is a reason, folks, 
There is a reason that Joel Ulstein fills a former basketball stadium every Sunday. There are lots of people that there's a reason that he is a best-selling author. It completely contradicts the scripture. But he doesn't say that he completely contradicts the scripture. He actually finds Bible verses to defend some of his arguments. And in verses 10 through 14, Paul points out that this is not something that happens rarely. And that there are just a few of them scattered around, but Paul argues that there are many of them. Verse number 10. For there are many unruly, disobedient, and vain talkers. They talk, but they don't say anything. And they are deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. People who utter senseless things. Many of them Jews. And they must be stopped, verse number 11. Their mouths must be stopped. They must be silenced. Because they overthrow entire households. I mean, their destruction is wholesale. And, and, and again, in Paul's world, I mean, to us, a household is a mom and dad and a few kids, and that's great, but in, in Paul's world, a household tended to be a lot larger than that. A husband and wife and perhaps grown children and grandchildren and slaves and attendants. I mean, look, you know, we're, we're, I'm assuming we're a lot like many Baptist churches. We've got lots of family connections in the church. Imagine, imagine if an entire family and everybody that was attached in one way or another related to that family got up in mass and went and sat under the ministry of a man like Joel Osteen. Their mouths must be stopped. They overthrow entire households, verse number 11. They teach things which they ought not teach. And they do this for the sake of of money. Now I realize that we understand this folks, but I mean right let's just let's just go back and talk about covid. And let's talk about the way that we have been disappointed in corporations and governments and professing scientists and what is our suspicion? Our suspicion is that they're not being moved by science or being moved by money. Well, isn't that going to be true at some level in the religious world? I mean, isn't it just possible, folks, that since I make my living by speaking to you as the pastor, that there might possibly arise some tension that if the church wanted me to say something or not say something and attached it to salary, that I would be tempted or moved at the prospect of being paid or not paid? Now, I realize you don't do that and you wouldn't do that, and I hope that I wouldn't respond to that, but it's a very real peril, isn't it? 
And it's a great peril in a country like America where demographics and marketplace desires and marketing are so powerful as influences. And Paul then, in verse number 12, quotes one of their own poets, one of their own prophets. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. What does he mean? They are lying, wild animals who are lazy. The idea is that they are leisurely eaters. That that is what occupies their time. They cannot tell the truth. They cannot be controlled. And they are not very productive. And then Paul says, verse 13, this witness is true. Whoo! Boy, would he get in trouble for saying something like that today. And his response to that in verse number 13 is this, Wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. And what he means is, get to the point. Right? Don't beat around the bush with these things. That's the point that he means. Rebuke them sharply. He's not saying call them names. He's not saying verbally berate them. He's saying get to the point. Right? This mentality, folks, of verse number 13. Right? We have a, we have a process and we have the person. We have a purpose. Why, why do we need the proclamation of God's word, both as from my standpoint as being one who's been called to do it and your standpoint as being one who's been called to hear it, why do we need this? And part of the reason for that, folks, is because what goes on in any culture may all by itself be entirely contradictory to what the scriptures teach. That's what he's arguing in verse number 12. The Cretans have a culture. And therefore, when Cretans come to faith, because this is what he's talking about. He's talking about saved Cretans. This is, this is the way we are. This is, what, this is what it means to be a Cretan. And Paul's supposed to go, that may be what it means to be a Cretan, but it's not what it means to be a Christian. So you've got to put an end to it. You've got to put your Christianity above your Cretanness. Just like folks, we've got to put our Christianity above our Americanness. We've got to deliberately, willfully, consciously, the Bible is instructing us to do this, to be Christians before we're Americans. And not just go, well, we're Americans, and this is what we do. This is what Paul is saying to Titus. Yeah, I know they're Cretans. The Cretans know they're Cretans. I know they're Cretans. You know they're Cretans. But they're Christians, and they need to be healthy doctrinally. So you've got to attack the fact that they think lying is an okay thing. And that they think to whatever extent being kind of rebellious and ornery is a good thing, you've got to fix that. And to whatever extent they think life is all about a long leisurely meal, you've got to put an end to that. 
Paul is warning Titus about the errors that they will face, which in verses 12 through 13 are the culture, the culture of the people of Crete. And in verse number 14, the presence of Jewish fables, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Right, so you have cultural influences. And what, what does God want to have happen in a church? He wants to bring his word right into the face of the culture. And he's not against every culture. But when any culture is against him, he's going to say, look, you need to get in line with me. And then you've got these Jewish fables, these religious myths. And what does the Lord say to that? My word, is going to, my word is going to confront those kinds of falsehoods. And you need to, you need, as the pastor, you need to preach the word, but as the congregation, you need to receive the word and not give heed to that. And then there are just all kinds, folks, of man-made rules. <clears throat> Verse 14, not giving heed to Jewish fables, there's one peril and commandments of men that turn from the truth. The very essence of what it meant to be a Pharisee was to invent religious rules that didn't lead men toward God, but actually led men away from Him. So this is why, this is, right, this is why the Word is proclaimed But I think we can understand easily, folks, this is why those who proclaim it cannot live in such a way as to bring a blot upon it. There are lots of people whose lifestyles disrespect and dishonor the doctrine. Our lives are not supposed to be those lives. And as we will see when we get into chapter 2, Paul is going to include all of us in that. It is certainly true that my life cannot dishonor the doctrine. But neither can yours. And finally then in verses 15 and 16, Paul talks about the peril that we face. There's a process of God wanting spokesmen and putting things in place to as much as is humanly possible, ensure that those spokesmen are going to do what they have been told to do. And so the people who hold that office have to live as the office holder is expected to live. Because there are no shortage of those who live in contradiction and who teach in contradiction. In verses 15 and 16, Paul labels two groups of people. We, we know who they are. Okay? I mean, we don't, don't, don't try to you know, get all mystified by what Paul is saying here. Unto the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. Let's just stop there. Two groups of people, the pure and the impure. Who are the pure? Obviously, the pure are the saved. <clears throat> So one group of people is the saved. And if one group of people are those that are saved, then those that are impure are those who are unsaved. 
So he's not making a distinction, right? He's not, he's not looking at the assembly of, of everybody and going, okay, you're, you're all believers, but some of you are pure and some of you are impure. No, it's just, it's much simpler than that. They are defiled, verse number 15, in that they are stained, stained with sin, and they are unbelieving, verse number 15. So there, there should be no doubt about who these people are. Right? These are unbelievers. These are people who don't believe in Jesus. Now let's go back and talk about those that are pure. To those that are saved. Under the pure, all things are pure. This doesn't mean that we can do anything that we want. What this means is that to those who are believers... Right? Part of the goal of our Christian living is to relate all things to God in a right way to enjoy them purely. This is, right, in, 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 in Titus, we'll, Paul will get to this in Titus. We, he talked about this in 1 Timothy. That there would be those who would command you cannot eat and you cannot get married. Paul will make the point in 1 Timothy 6 that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. To those that are saved, to those that have been purified, everything is pure. Now, again, not sin, but all the good things that God has given us, all of those things, our families, our friends, our church members, our homes, our cars, our bank accounts, our vacation days, our evenings, everything is pure. And to those of us who are saved, the constant labor of life is to rightly relate everything that we do. 1 Corinthians 10.31, right down to eating and drinking to the glory of God. But what about the impure? What about the unbelieving? Well, verse number 15, Paul spends a lot more time on the unbelievers than he does the believers. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. And I didn't take the, the time to, to develop this, folks, but particularly in the Proverbs, this is stated several times. I mean, the reality is, what can an unbelieving person do that is acceptable to God? And the answer is absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. He is completely and totally alienated. He is completely and totally unacceptable. And until he comes to God in faith and believes the word and submits himself to the teaching of Scripture, there is nothing that he can do. And so to go back here to the text, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. And Paul here isn't talking about the way that God would view them, but about the way they would view everything in life. If a man is internally unclean, if he is internally an unbeliever, how can he relate anything in life rightly to God? How could it in any way be pure and clean? He's not clean. How can the way he does his job be clean? Cannot be. 
Now, from a human standpoint, it may be, the, may be a great employee and a great co-worker, but, but he's not that way to the Lord. And in fact, Paul goes on, even their mind and conscience is defiled. Even their mind and conscience is defiled. Right, now, this is, not, this is not scientific, folks. This is just completely anecdotal. This is just my observation. When I became a pastor 40 years ago, almost 40 years ago, and I would go out into the, into the unbelieving marketplace, Right? I, go, I go shopping for a car. And the car salesman go, what do you do? I'm a pastor. And then they'd get very religious. And seriously, folks, back in the early days, it didn't matter. No matter what, I just got to the place where I didn't want to tell people I was a pastor right at the outset because they got all weird religious on you. But that was 40 years ago. Now you say to people, well, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh. It's almost like What's a pastor? It just seems to me that as a culture, we're a lot farther away from the Lord than we ever were. Even their mind and their conscience is defiled. And if you ask then, well, Paul, what do you mean? And Paul's going to answer the question in verse number 16. And folks, in verse number 16, you can begin to get a sense of why you have verses 6 through 9 when it comes to the pastor and how he must live and why you have 1 Timothy 2 when it comes to the congregation and how they must live. Because you have this. Here's part of the peril. Do you see? Here's the, now we're to the peril part of the outline. We have two groups of people. The pure and the impure. And to the pure, everything is pure. And to the impure, nothing is pure. But, verse number 16, but, they profess that they know God. They profess that they know God. They have Bibles. They carry them. They profess that they know God. But, but in works, in works they deny Him. Being abominable, which this is not a dictionary definition, but when I read the word abominable, I just try to remember always that it is the most intense word that God has, and it reminds me that I cannot possibly feel as deeply the disgust at something that God feels. It is abominable. They're abominable. And disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. They're without the capacity to make right and sound decisions. In other words, both the pastor and the congregation are supposed to be in their right minds, but they are interacting with a group of people who profess to be believers, but when it comes to the way they live, they're out of their minds. This is a great peril, folks. 
I mean, it would be one thing, and the world is filled with these P kind of people who go, I don't want anything to do with God. I don't even want to know that there is a God, and I'm just going to live the way I want to live. And we go, we recognize that. But there's another group of people, that's what's being identified here. They go, I know the Lord. But their works, their works contradict their profession. And so here's part of the responsibility of the church, both the pastor and the congregation. Nobody is allowed to live in such a way that their lifestyle contradicts the message. Nobody is supposed to be able to get away with living, verse number 16, without being called out for it. Nobody. So there's the presence of those who profess and whose works are blatantly, clearly contradictory to the teaching of Scripture. And that is, you know, again, folks, and I'm sorry for reaching back into my past, but in my past, we just kind of accepted those folks as saved. Well, they, 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 they called on the Lord, and they've got a date written in the flyleaf of their Bible when they trusted Jesus. And I know that... <clears throat> They're backslid, but that's okay. And God's going, it's not okay. It's not okay at all. So into this comes the pastor who is ministering to the church. And his task is to go, here is what the Bible says. Here is what the Bible says. Here is what the Bible says. It is not to be this great visionary dynamic personality is to be, here is what the Lord says, and here is what we have to do, and here's what you need to do. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that you would grant to me a sensitivity and a tenderness to your word and your spirit that I would not live contrary to the word of God. But I pray this, Father, not simply for myself, but for all of the congregation, for none of us are given that indulgence. None of us are given that latitude. But to those of us who are true believers, all things are pure, and every portion of our life is to be rightly related to you. Help us to that end, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.